0: On Cinema's Morgasbord Presents, How Do You Do, Fellow Kids?, we look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor, Steve Buscemi. Today, we're looking at Alexander Rockwell's 1992 independent comedy, In the Soup. (laughs) How you do, fellow kids? I'm Doug Tillian with me as usual is the Flying Frenchman Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam?
1: I'm apparently <laughs> flying Ed French. Two things I wasn't <laughs> aware of. But yeah, no, I'm good, Doug. How are you doing? Uh, you know what? <laughs>
0: I hate this part of our podcast sometimes. A, I love it because, of course, I'm getting to talk to you. We're being relaxed. We're talking about our daily lives. I feel like it means the audience is getting to know us in a little bit of a closer context. But I also don't want to be a bummer, right? I also don't want to be talking about the world because it's difficult not to feel cynical, Liam. And that's what I'm fighting against at yeah. this part of my life, in this part of the year, 2021, in which we're recording this podcast. I'm just trying to fight off cynicism. And I, as I try to reaffirm on this podcast sometimes, in my like day-to-day life, things right now, there's a stability there that a lot of people don't have. I feel very thankful for that. I have friends. I have a wife. I have my family. I'm just very thankful, and I want to focus on how thankful I am so I don't have to think about how the world is shit.
1: <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, though. This is what helps me, right? Because I think uh, there, I, I agree. There are a lot of things in my personal life that are pretty good. And if I focus on them, I'll be a little more positive. But even some of the things in my personal life are kind of bullshit right now, honestly. And so uh, what I realized the other day is I went to uh, tweet. You know, which is, by the way, the healthiest way to vent one's negative feelings (laughs) is to shoot them out onto the anonymous Internet, you know, where no one cares about you. Uh, So I I I went to go do it and I realized that every thought I had about the state of the world and the way that the state of the world was affecting my life had become a cliche. They had been memified. It is currently a popular meme. Uh, in normie culture not even in like the edges of the internet in the most accessible (laughs) normie culture to point out that it's kind of lame that we all have to live our everyday lives and go to work in the middle of an apocalypse yeah that has become a cliche like the most extreme cynicism of like man it sucks that i still have to live in the midst of the end of the world is now like it might as well be a joke on 30 rock or some shit and so like realizing that, I was like, well, I'm just not a cliche, so I'm just going to be hopeful and positive, because what could be less of the zeitgeist right now? What could fit <laughs> the main like uber-culture less than being like, I don't know, I'll be okay? That seems like a fucking crazy thing that crazy people say at this moment. So That's my new vibe. Everything's chill. Who gives a fuck? I'm good.
0: There's also a bit of a pushback to people who are catastrophizing or perhaps people who are... Um, Going a little overboard with the doomsday esque response to things, and people are being like, like, you can't, you can't just give up. You can't, uh, you, you can't just uh, let all this happen. That you need to do something." And I feel that, and I, I do want to participate in like making things better. But the people who have the power to actually make things better, and I'm not just talking about politicians. I mean, large corporations and uh, basically world powers in general, like it's you're right Liam it's very hard to stay away from cliches in a case like this where to say like it's like I they're not listening to me and they don't give a fuck if I die tomorrow or if my entire family or my entire city just fucking falls into the sea they don't care about that so it's hard to feel uh kinship with a bunch of other people who are all just very scared and uh, concerned about what the next year or 10 years or 100 years of this planet are going to look like. So yeah, I guess maybe I am kind of a, a doom and gloom person who is trying not to give in to that cynicism. And that's that. That's my message to you, listeners, for the rest of the year 2021. I'm not going to give in. <laughs>
1: That's I, how I feel. I think that the, the 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 to be more specific, I just think I'm at a point where I need to find some place where I'm contributing in a more obviously, right. you know, directly positive way. Uh, I don't think the stuff that I do or that people like us do is a bad thing because everything I do is tinged with my concerns and who I am and and being a voice for for what's you know. Uh, 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 I think, uh, th- the right way, you know, what, what I think is towards a more free h- h- human experience. On the other hand, I think that that's just not satisfying when it does feel like such a crisis. I don't know about effective. I, I think if we reach for effective, we inevitably are in a bad place because we don't know what's going to be effective or yeah, not. Yeah. But but I think we could lean towards stuff that, that at least... Uh, feels more direct and that's sort of where I'm at is like okay how do I start pouring my energy into things that feel more direct and feel less like diffused feel less like indirect you know I think
0: I just spent a lot of my life thinking that my purpose on the planet was to minimize making the world a worse place Uh, you know not even the hopes of making the world a better place it's just like the things I do that make the world worse. Let's try to minimize those as much as possible, so my impact is not altogether negative. And like that's just not enough. <laughs> it's just not <laughs> enough for me personally. Yeah, and it's yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe uh, maybe it just means I need to make a shift on my perspective and worldview. And uh, listeners know that I'm not going to take a bunch of nitroglycerin and blow up a building or something like that. But uh, at least that would be a statement. I think we need to make some statements, Liam, and this is a good place <laughs> to make statements here. Um, and you know, part of the reason I might be uh, pondering a lot of the cynicism might have to do with the fact that we've just passed the 20th anniversary of the World Trade Center terrorist attack. Um, and we're already past that anniversary at this point, so I don't think we need to necessarily linger on it. But it does tie into our podcast today, Liam, because quite famously, Cibasemi C- not only was a former firefighter, but on nine eleven, then uh, he actually went and participated and went back to his old um, uh, firehouse and and helped uh, dig out people from the rubble and things like that. Um, and it's something that I think. Uh, It was a story, I think it took a few years to kind of come out, but it is one of those kind of, when people have positive feelings about Steve Buscemi, it feels like it's wrapped up in those feelings around, you know, this kind of heroism, I think it's fair to say, on 9-11. And I like that he doesn't necessarily make a big deal out of it either. And I think one of the reasons for that has kind of been revealed recently. Uh, So Steve Buscemi's been doing a little bit of um, publicity work lately because he executive produced a documentary called Dust, The Lingering Legacy of 9-11. Uh, which I have not seen. Uh, in fact, I haven't heard a lot about it, but he was recently on the WTF podcast with Mark Maron, one of your favorite podcasts. Is that correct, Liam? <laughs> it's okay. It was a, a kind of a defining podcast for a number of years. We don't need to linger on this either, but you know, Mark Maron is someone that uh, I have a lot of uh, patience for, and I feel like I have to have a lot of patience for it because I do find him a little irritating <laughs> sometimes. And I had not listened to an episode of his podcast for years and years. Uh, when I used to listen to it all the time. But recently, Steve Buscemi was on his podcast. And I do have to say, Liam, um, it was very eye-opening for me as someone who has a podcast about Steve Buscemi. But it was also really interesting to hear a lot of his early life. It kind of put a lot of pieces together, things that we've kind of talked about on this show, like how he started out. He started out in stand-up, which I don't think we have ever really covered, and then kind of transitioned into doing performance art with Mark Boone and was part of that kind of uh, New York underground scene and, and like no wave music and punk music at that time period. And really, you know, that's where he met people like Jim Jarmusch and Rockets Red Glare and people that he would collaborate with for a lot of the uh, 80s and he would be in the theatrical scene. And then in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, he started to focus more on film because at that time, people who went, uh, who were in that theatrical scene, if they tried to go out outside of it, were thought of as sellouts right and William Defoe I guess was an example of that in his circle right that William Defoe would work in theater and then he'd go off and make movies and go back and forth and people in the theater were like what are you doing man you got to stay pure in the theater have any thoughts on that Liam staying
1: pure in the theater I, I, I my thought is I hate you saying theater and I never want <laughs> to hear you say it again
0: what you don't trip this trip the light fantastic on the theater the theater stage Liam what's wrong with me saying theater I'd rather you just say theater theater. Theater? Yeah. yeah. Why? What's it, has it spelled T-H-E-E-T-E-R? Is that what it is? Theater? I just hate
1: you so much right now.
0: Theater. <laughs> One of the things on this podcast, Leah, is that Cebu Semi uh, mentioned his uh, PTSD that he had after 9-11. It's something that he does not talk about. I, I mean, his experience at on 9-11 generally, he has not talked a lot about it. Um, and uh, even though Mark Marin, <laughs> I have to say, like the first 20 minutes of this Interview is sort of unbearable because Mark Maron's trying to like ingratiate with himself with Steve Seagal, and he starts talking about it. it's like, yeah, you know, I used a quote of yours recently, and he's just like he just you know says a quote from one of his movies, and Steven is like, ah, okay, just like having to deal with this ridiculous idiot. Anyway, so uh, going back to something dark and depressing. So Steve Buscemi talked a little bit about his PTSD on this episode of WTF. It is very interesting uh, to hear him talk about it. Um, you know, he at, apparently on the day of he called down the firehouse that he used to work at multiple times after getting no answer. He just headed down to the site. He mentioned that he was depressed and anxious afterwards, and he couldn't make a simple decision. He says so. Uh, it's very interesting to hear about the firefighter side of Steve Buscemi. Uh, apparently, so just to, again, we're, we're going a little bit over the, the historical aspect of him as an actor, but he, he'd already been doing stand-up and acting a little bit uh, when he then decided to quit it all and become a firefighter in the early 80s. And and then it was after doing that for a while Then he started to get some roles otherwise. And he was kind of splitting his time between the two. And then he got some roles in movies that were so extensive that he couldn't take that much time anymore. And that's why he left being a firefighter. Um, any thoughts on nine eleven, Liam, the tragedy of your nation? Do you still remember?
1: <laughs> <it>? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of very cynical things I could say about this. I will say that even as someone who is very skeptical of the uh kind of jingoism and, and and nationalism that rose out of the event itself. Uh it's still worth remembering because even if I want to focus on the millions dead because of that event that we went and killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, um Mission that's accomplished. that's still the that's still the event that kicked that off. So it's still a tragic event. Sure. Um I, I think the thing in itself, of course, is tragic, but Uh, It's hard for many of us, especially those of us who opposed the war from the beginning, to mourn properly, I would say, that loss because that loss was so fetishized to justify innumerable deaths that we pretended didn't matter at all. So it's really hard for me to hold those... Uh, three thousand folks, let alone the people I mean it's way more than that, right? Because of all the cancer absolutely and the people who are who who went down there very heroically. And and, and let's not ignore for, for for there's a lot of people who struggle with this. Um I want to specifically lift up that the, the uh, NY uh, Fire Department sure. as being extremely heroic and point out how mostly unheroic the NYPD was, that mm-hmm. they were seen to be looting and assaulting people, and there was even a brawl between the New York City uh, Police Department and Fire Department because of uh, the New York City Police Department not allowing firefighters to go down and look for their comrades. Yep. Uh, and so, like, you know... I, I just think there there's a lot. I think I think fire departments, regardless of people's individual experiences, I think fire departments in and of themselves are a great thing, and I, I think that that it's one of the examples of mutual aid that we actually get from. You know, our our ancient history, really. It was one of the first things people did to help each other. Uh, uh, but I do think like focusing too much, like around here, nine eleven became an excuse for a lot of people to strap giant flags to their trucks. yeah exactly, and but. and signs that were like Trump won the election and and the idea of conflating that fucking piece of shit to what happened on that day is so crazy to me that the whole thing gives me a weird feeling.
0: You know, I think that, that's very reasonable. As, as a great person once said, there's no song called Fuck the Fire Department. <laughs> there's a, really a really good reason for that. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I highly recommended uh, that interview on WTF. We'll put a link to it in the show notes today. Also recently, as part of this kind of uh, series of, of promotion that Steve Buscemi was doing. Uh, on September 10th, he did a live event with Kevin Smith called Being Busemi, An Evening with Steve, which was an intimate benefit for the New York-based Friends of Firefighters organization. So it was hosted by Kevin Smith, took place in, um, in New York at Smith's Smod Castle. So I, I, again, I have not checked this out. It was streamed live. I actually did not hear about it until after it actually occurred. But it's I like that there is so much positive feeling towards Steve Buscemi as a person. And again, we can't pretend to know him intimately, uh, certainly at this point. But I think when people think of him, even outside of his performances, what they know about him as a person is that he seems like a very magnanimous and interesting guy who is, has, at least you know, from the, the, the story we were just telling, has, has a selfless side to him. I don't like on any of our podcasts to sort of like deify the people that we're talking about. But it's nice that people like him, you know? It's just nice to talk about a guy who seems nice, and that is the thing that I think was reaffirmed on that interview with Mark Merrin. is that he just seemed like a decent guy. And one bit of information that was interesting for us on that uh, podcast, by the way, Liam, was that Steve Asemi is directing another movie. At the time he recorded that, interview. He was just about to start filming it within a few days. And it it seems like a pretty interesting concept. The name escapes me at the moment. And unfortunately, I don't think it has been uh, has any major announcements. But it's, it's about a woman who has like a helpline. And the whole movie is just her sitting in, I guess, her house or in a room and answering the phone as people are looking for advice on things. And, you know, it, in some ways, it's been influenced by the uh the pandemic and and a lot of the kind of catastrophes in the world but the whole movie is going to take place in this one room sort of like a talk radio type situation and that's uh, that's what steve Buscemi is working on right now a a one room movie
1: i love that i think that sounds really interesting
0: yeah, me too. Though I think it's funny if I told someone else that, Liam, they'd be like, that sounds horrible. Why the fuck would I watch something like that? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's because we recently watched a whole movie that took place in a single apartment, and <laughs> maybe maybe uh, we're just uh, attuned to things like that. Liam, did you know that Steve Buscemi was in a bar fight?
1: No, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, this is an article from thethings.com. How a brutal bar fight made Steve Buscemi a way better friend. This is way back in 2001. Uh, Steve Buscemi and the great Vince Vaughn. Liam, are you a big Vince Vaughn fan?
1: Uh, no, I'm. Uh... <laughs> talk about talk about an actor whose uh, real life vibe has kind of ruin their work for me i i still think there's there's a couple of performances that i try to hold on to a little bit just because I, I i still like them but a, a lot of stuff lately i feel like his natural curmudgeon conservative white guyness comes through the performance and the whole thing just reminds me that i don't like him as a dude uh not too dissimilar to james woods i bet you uh i i, I you know more recent james woods performances are also going to bum me out Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's reasonable too. Uh, I'll tell you that S. Craig Zoller doesn't seem to have any
0: problem with Vince Vaughn. It seems like he loves working with him. Yeah, Coincidentally, another famous Hollywood conservative, Mel Gibson. It's kind of strange that he keeps moving towards people like that. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. It's uh, it's for somebody else to say. (laughs) It's for someone else to say. So Steve
0: Buscemi and Vince Vaughn and Scott Rosenberg, who uh, wrote Con Air, which of course Steve Buscemi was in, as well as Venom and the Jumanji sequels. They were out together, got in a big bar fight. Uh, actually, what happened was Vince Vaughn was uh, hitting on a woman, can you believe this? Can you believe this, you've been hearing about this? Uh, hitting on a woman, and her boyfriend took umbrage with it, and Steve Buscemi, being a stand-up guy, he tried to back up his friend, ended up getting stabbed, Liam. What do you think about that? Uh, Steve Buscemi getting stabbed. That seems crazy to me, actually. Yeah, right? And Vince Vaughn didn't get even a scratch on him. <laughs> But uh, following the aforementioned 2001 incident, a man named Timothy William Fogarty was charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Uh, and apparently the 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 stab wound was such that Steve Buscemi could have died, but thankfully, for all uh, concerned, he made a full recovery. But this gentleman uh, ended up, uh, yeah, he ended up uh, going to jail, I guess, briefly, but he really did not spend much time away. But I, I would say that that is a story that he probably told and continues to tell the time that he almost killed Steve Buscemi in a bar fight.
1: Yeah, that seems like something you bring up at a party, you know, with your yeah. friends. Like, hey, remember remember that, huh? Yeah, I, I fucked up that Steve Buscemi. Although it doesn't make you sound tough to fuck up no, Steve No,
0: it's true. He probably said that it's like, I was beating the hell out of Vince Vaughn. Even that probably doesn't sound that tough these days. But I was beating the shit out of famous actor Vince Vaughn. And guess who then backed him up? It was Steve Buscemi. And I took this knife. <laughs> and I jammed it into Steve Buscemi, the famous weaselly actor. That... Or, Every, you know, you're, how about this? You're sitting at home and you got TBS on and they have the uh, television editor Fargo on. And you're sitting there and your wife or girlfriend or, or whatever is next to you. And Steve Asemi's on the screen. And you're like, hey, you know that guy? I almost killed that guy. <laughs> I,
1: I, 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 we're biased because we have such affection for Steve. There, there's no part of me that thinks that sounds cool. The more that I think about it, the more I'm like, man, what a motherfucker. Although, this all sounds like Vince Vaughn's fault, so I don't know. I I, I shouldn't point fingers. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, I think if if we can blame things on Vince Vaughn, it's probably worthwhile. Liam, on this episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to be talking about the film In the Soup. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about this movie is that it almost vanished forever, or what I should say is the original elements of it uh, were in such disrepair a few years ago that there had to be a Kickstarter to uh both uh uh, scan the original elements and to kind of bring it back into working order and to preserve it permanently and thankfully that that was an effective kickstarter which is why the version that both you and i watched was a, a very high quality um and right around the time that this new version of the film came out there was a lot of publicity around it and some of that publicity uh involved interviews with steve buscemi and one of the things he mentioned is uh, something that's kind of uh, notable because of our last episode, which was on Billy Bathgate, you might remember, Liam. And oh, I do. So Steve Buscemi said that In the Soup arrived at a pivotal moment in his career. Uh, it played in at the Sundance Film Festival alongside Reservoir Dogs, so 1992 being a big year for Steve Buscemi. He said, I had just come off my first commercial film, which was Billy Bathgate. I was on set with not much to do i loved the people i was working with but it was frustrating to me as an actor to see how much time it took to set up the shots then to go from that to this film where i was in almost every scene and working every day i loved it that was why i wanted to become an actor so it's funny going from like this huge hollywood movie billy bathgate which wasn't great and did not have a lot of steve Buscemi semi in it he kind of was just in the background and in a few scenes but you can see how this that was a massive moment for him to be in a hollywood movie but what the kind of roles that were going to define him in this decade that were going to make him famous were all happening immediately afterwards in smaller movies, right? So he went from filming Billy, Billy Bathgate, basically going to In the Soup, then going to Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> kind of a, a big kind of 3 fur roles for him.
1: It's kind of crazy because I bet that In the Soup and Reservoir Dogs were more familiar like they were more similar but the phenomena of reservoir dogs and the phenomena of in the soup are so different you know what i mean and then to think like of those three the big movie was the one that like i i would guarantee nine out of ten uh steve buscemi fans self-identified probably haven't watched that uh billy bathgate movie
0: right or and probably a lot of them haven't watched in the soup the 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 Interesting thing about all that is that In the Soup was the film that won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival, the same festival that Reservoir Dogs appeared in. Uh, So, I mean, at that time period, the movie that looked like it was going to launch Steve Buscemi as an actor was this one. Not Reservoir Dogs. So uh, we are going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about how this all went down, what the legacy of In the Soup is, if it was worthy of that grand jury prize, at least according to the two of us, and, uh, and what people think of it these days. We'll get back to that right after this. You know what we got? We got a dog that can read your mind. You're kidding me, right? New York. New York. If I could
1: take living there, I could take living anywhere. I get $100 for this, right? Only problem is I'm broke. You know, before you put us in the movie, Mr. Hollywood, you know, where's the lamp? What was I gonna do? I had sold everything. What else could I sell? I got a phone call from a guy named Joe. So how much do you need for this movie? No last name. Just Joe. So we're gonna make a motion picture. I decided I want art to be an important part of my life. Angelica. You could be the star of my movie, such beauty and grace. You're happy to see me because your face brightens when I come around. You finished? Medium shot of an intense, mysterious, dark-haired woman. And she is an angel, literally. Joe!
0: An aspiring young filmmaker gets involved with an eccentric gangster for the financing of his first film. It is 1992's In the Soup, directed by Alexander Rockwell. Uh, Might also be known for the film Pete Smalls is Dead, uh, 13 Moons, and maybe, uh, to our listeners, the Wrong Man segment in the anthology film Four Rooms, which also includes uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez directing segments. Do you have any feelings on Four Rooms, Liam?
1: You know, it's been so long since I've watched it, I don't really remember much about it.
0: This isn't the one with the witches, and this isn't the one with the dead body, and it's not the one with Quentin Tarantino and the chopping of the fingers. It must be the other one, I guess.
1: Sure, that sounds right. <laughs>
0: written by Alexander Rockwell and Solace Mitchell, who also uh, uh, wrote 1990's Dr. M and 1999's Row Your Boat. Uh, This is a black and white film, Liam, uh, which I did know going in, though it was filmed on color stock. The director says, we really wanted a high contrast look with deeply saturated blacks and brilliant whites in the final prints of the film. The only way we could achieve that was by shooting on a fine grain color stock and then printing on black and white stock, which is primarily used for making silhouette mats and traveling mats. I actually think it looks great. It's a really, really attractive looking movie, and as I mentioned, it won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival and a Best Actor Award for Seymour Cassell uh, and, and did indeed win over Reservoir Dogs also featuring Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi stars in the film as Adolfo Rolo. Seymour Cassell as Joe, uh, yeah, the gangsterous characters also features Jennifer Beals uh, the great Will Patton in a small role here. A lot of familiar faces. Stanley Tucci is here uh, small appearances by Jim Jarmusch and as you mentioned when you first started watching this on social media, this uh, this episode of How Do You Do Fellow Kids is also sort of a crossover with Praising Kane, maybe even a crossover with Forgotten Gems because Carol Kane appears in this film uh, in a small part with Jim Jarmusch as a couple that make some sort of <laughs> nude-based interview show for New York television. Uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Some other familiar faces as well. Uh, and as I mentioned, the original elements of this were in bad shape. They ended up having to do a Kickstarter a few years ago. One of the big fans of this movie is Peter Dinklage. He uh, contributed some, uh, some help to some of the Kickstarter rewards, and it did raise the $90,000, and they did indeed uh, bring In the soup, back to life. Liam, what do you think that a $15,000 pledge on a Kickstarter would have gotten you as a reward?
1: Uh, I don't know. A visit from Steve Buscemi? I have no idea.
0: (laughs) With a $15,000 pledge, you and up to two friends can join actors Steve Buscemi, Jennifer Uh Beals, Sam Rockwell and director Alex Rockwell, even though they are not related, we just had to do some research on that, for an exclusive soup date, a lunch or dinner in New York City at a restaurant of the cast's choosing, I like the cast choose the restaurant. Uh, in addition to dining with the cast, we'll list the name of your choice in the special thanks section at the end credits of the digital edition. And you can join us as a VIP guest at one of the big screen premieres of In the Soup, the re-release in New York City or Los Angeles, the two cities of Liam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really it, right? Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, that does sound like a lot of fun. Uh, Sam Rockwell, by the way, we should get this out of the way right at the beginning of the conversation. He plays a character that has a, uh intellectual disability uh, and is played... Four laughs, I think you would say, but not exaggerated laughs. Not like a character in like there's something about Mary or something like that. But uh, th- th- probably a role that didn't age particularly well, though. This is a very young Sam Rockwell, uh, and and obviously he went on to a lot of great parts uh, after this uh, film. This is this is after his role in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though.
1: Oh, I forgot he was in Mutant. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just in it briefly. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, wow. Way to smack me with that one.
0: A lot of information here uh right off the right off
1: the bat. Uh Liam, what did you think of In the Soup? In for a movie that is really like um a kind of maudlin suffering artist sure. uh, uh and, and and in some ways could be seen as a movie of of a kind of betrayal. Uh, it's super pleasant. It's one of the more pleasant things I've sat through recently. It just is, like, kind of nice. I, I, I don't know. I I, I It's wish funny I for had... a movie that
0: has so much kind of threat in it yeah. that I, I absolutely agree with you. That that all in all, you, you come from it with a very warm feeling.
1: You could make the argument that this is a movie in which uh, uh, Cassell seduces Buscemi. That, yeah. That's the plot of the movie is Buscemi is sad. And, and pointless, and he doesn't know how to even try to do the – you know, most most aspiring filmmakers at least have, like, a an idea of how to, like, start doing something. And he seems like he doesn't even know where to begin. And so he's so desperate for money that he – that's just how he meets – uh, the Cassell character is—he's trying to sell his script, which, by the way, apparently he does in the in the fucking <laughs> want ads in the paper. Yeah,
0: classified. God right. damn it! Like this is this
1: dude has no idea what the fuck he's doing. Um, and his movie's going to be bad, as as you pointed out, off mic. It's it's good. It's probably not going to be a great movie, but it's something that <sighs> the movie kind of
0: reinforces. Uh, yeah. The movie being in the soup reinforces that his movie is super pretentious and right.
1: full of like film school type cliches. But there's a sense in which, right, the movie's also about how, like, it's not – the world of being a struggling artist and the world of being a criminal are not really that different, right? right? Like, there's there's a lot of feeling of being on the edge, of not having a rule book, of having to trust people that you probably shouldn't fucking trust, and, uh, and maybe being sucked into something that wasn't exactly what you were planning on. And that's basically what happens. Over time, just in, like, trusting him and, and showing him attention, Cassell slowly kind of seduces him. And it's never clear – whether all of this is just about manipulation or sure. whether he's going to make the movie. But the movie has such, like, honestly low stakes. Like, it's so much just about the experience itself than it is about the result. That, like, you don't fucking care, right? I don't know that I ever care. And, and, and the film even ends with a note of, I never learned his last name. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's like, yeah, you never thought to ask, right? Like, there's just a – there's something about it that just feels like a – maybe not a dream, but but it has that kind of ephemeral quality. Does yeah, it definitely
0: sense? has a kind of a fantasy edge to it. Yeah. For sure.
1: Totally. Totally. And and Buscemi's charming. Cassell is charming. Uh, Beale is charming. Like, the, the main people you care about work. Uh, there's – oh, I forget the actor's name. Who's the menacing brother?
0: Oh, uh, the uh, yeah, the Will Patton's character yeah. in this.
1: Will Patton is like Skippy. One of, Skippy's one of the few people meant to be gross, and he fucking excels. Like just <laughs> every time he's on screen, you're like, "Fuck, oh my god!" And then uh, there's a brief cameo as a Frenchman is uh, Stanley Tucci. Yeah, Stanley Tucci, awesome. Like that whole scene. Gregoire. Was great. <laughs> Gregoire. Oh, man, there's just there's just so much to love about the movie. But I also think there's just not much to it to grasp onto. So, like, I could probably rewatch this movie. I feel like people could, you know, watch it a few times. But there's nothing about it, for me, at least, to, like, think very much about later. It just was kind of like a very pleasant experience.
0: It's a very meandering movie. Yeah. But the thing is, when I think about independent movies of like the late eighties, early nineties, that is what I think of. It's like a meandering movie. The funny thing is, we're at the year that this won the grand jury prize at Sundance, it felt like it uh, the independent film was in the midst of a revolution, right? And within, you know, three or four years, the entire landscape of it would have changed, and movies like this kind of fell out of favor, movies that are that are a little more meandering and are willing to kind of fixate on uh, wild tangents and and move away from the main plot a little bit, and that's why I actually found it really refreshing to watch the movie because yeah. it didn't feel as focused as as well certainly something like Reservoir Dogs, and it's a weird movie to even put up against Reservoir Dogs outside of Steve Buscemi starring in the in the the two of them. Uh, there's nothing like you. It feels like they come from completely different planets, but they do represent kind of that shift, right? Because Tarantino would be the face of independent film for a lot of the rest of this decade. So I loved this movie, I really, really did. I had so much fun with it, but uh, I agree with all of the points that you made. There, it's it's a movie where it's hard to get too ingratiated with Steve Buscemi's main character because he has an artistic vision and he believes in it, but we know it's not a good artistic vision, but he, that doesn't mean he shouldn't still get to make his movie necessarily, uh, even if it wouldn't be something that would be fun to watch afterwards. There's this great sequence where he is, has this kind of book which is the entire script that he has of the movie and he's reading it to Seymour cassell and like he's he's reading it and acting it out as he goes and cassell is, is like he's at first he's super enthusiastic and then he starts to glaze over and he gets more and more bored and he asks him what page he's on he's like page five of this like, incredibly like 500 page script and he tells him he gives him a gun and says just to shoot him instead it's it's uh, a really clear parallel between what a filmmaker is supposed to be going through with you know, both collaborators and producers, right? Someone who's trying to finance their movie, whether they care about the process of actually bringing that art to the screen or whether they care about the money side of things solely. And that, uh, as you mentioned, that is never revealed in the movie proper. We never, Joe does seem to like him a lot. He seems to like Alfonso sincerely. He likes to spend time with him. He keeps showing up at his apartment and in his bed and is very affectionate with him, almost to a, a comical, well, more than a comical degree. But you you also get the impression that maybe he's using him in some way. But if he is using him, he's not using him very well, right? Right. Uh, he, it's, not, it's not like they have to go half and half on a lot of the criminal activity that they're part of. But those criminal acts do get more and more surreal and that does play into that fantasy aspect that we were talking about like there's a part where he sends Steve Buscemi to basically say a secret password to a little person and a guy dressed in a gorilla outfit uh and there's no explanation at all about that but uh but that's just just a little thing just a little moment uh that happens in the movie it's it's i think it's a lot of fun but i do think that there isn't a lot of emotional resonance at it maybe that's why it wouldn't necessarily stick with you outside of my memory of this movie is I felt very warm towards it, but a lot of that warmth comes from that Seymour Cassell performance. Can you tell me a little bit about this role? Liam, did, do you know much about Seymour Cassell as a performer? I've seen him in some Cassavetes films. Obviously, I saw him in Rushmore, which is a movie that was a, was a big deal to me in the early 2000s, but uh, what, what do you know about him and what did you think about this performance?
1: I mean, the performance is great. I guess I know him primarily from Cassavetti's, which makes me sound very intellectual. (laughs) But the reality is I only started watching Cassavetti's movies this year. So like, I managed this year now to – I've seen four of Cassavetti's movies that I had never seen before. And so because of that, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, Seymour Cassell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm all familiar. But before that, I only knew him from his more recent things. Like you bring up Rushmore. There's also something I saw him in – I don't know. I don't have it on the top of my head. I've seen him in a couple of things as an older gentleman. But yeah. it wasn't until Cassavetes that I saw him younger, which is, like, I don't know if I'd say a huge difference, but a significant difference, you know? He's kind of the one thing I, I remember Cassavetes from. He's kind of like a like a playboy character, sure. which is not really how I saw him at all. So that was just an interesting contradiction, you know?
0: Though he, is, he does have elements of that in his character here as well. Right. He's just such a live wire in this movie. Yep. Right? He's so playful, and he seems so willing to take chances, like physical chances. There's parts where him and Steve Buscemi's character are like wrestling around, and they're like falling over furniture and stuff. It's just weird to think of Seymour Cassell, especially because I think he was in his late 50s here. But, I mean, he could easily be in his 60s. He just is such a physical performer. And that even uh, goes through to his dancing, which might be one of the most memorable things in the movie, him showing off his dancing skill. And very impressive, by the way. But he's just such a magnetic performer. You can see why he did get some attention for this performance. I thought both of the lead performances in this were absolutely dynamite. But he is the one that kind of I'm going to be taking away from it. What an amazing actor. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, it kind of feels like no one else could have played this role like that. Like like this movie wouldn't be half as good without him kind of walking away with it. Uh, I was reading some behind the scenes material on the film. Apparently him and the director, even though he has very the director has very warm feelings towards Seymour Cassell, that like his performance in this was how he was like on the set. He was just very difficult to wrangle, and they got into like like physical arguments sometimes on the set of this, it's hard to imagine because he seems so genial. But there's also kind of a menace to his character. There's a part where he goes, gets very handsy with Jennifer Beale's character, and uh, comes off as like a real creep. And then of course they make up afterwards. But it's, it's a, it's, it's a kind of hard to get a handle on him. And I think that's kind of one of the purposes of the movie that you never really get a sense of what this guy is all about.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that that works for the film because part of the appeal of the character is that the audience and Buscemi's character, Alfonso, they don't know what to make of him. Yeah. And that's part of um, why he's so drawn to him. And why we're so drawn to him is because it's like, well, what is the deal? Like, what is he about? Like, what is happening here? Um, And I think there's something very appealing about that mystery, Uh, and I like that it's not solved for us, but I do think, like... um, I don't know. It's it's, but it's not a mystery that like you want to solve. Does that make sense? Like it's sure. it's not like that. It's more just like a question that's compelling. Uh,
0: there's a lot of familiar faces in this movie, as I mentioned. Uh, two of those are Jim Jarmusch and Carol Kane. It kind of connects to that WTF interview I was mentioning because a lot of the people that Steve Buscemi kind of interacted with in New York in the '80s ended up being people that he would bring with him. To a certain extent, in the roles that he would have throughout the '90s, uh, someday it might be fun, Liam, to go back and watch *Trees Lounge* again after having seen so much of Steve Buscemi's career, because this film has many of the same cast as, uh, as *Trees Lounge*, including Seymour Cassel, who appears in that, Steve Randazzo, Elizabeth Brocco, Demi Mazar, Carol Kane, Rockets Glare. They're all in that movie, are in this movie as well. A lot of those people he would have interacted with in New York in the 1980s. I already mentioned Rockets Redglare, who was kind of. The leader, uh, he was, um, uh, I guess at one point, was a bodyguard for Sid Vicious and then became the leader of this sort of a group of people who did performance art in New York in the early 80s. And that's why he ended up being in Tree's Lounge and and in this film. And uh, I guess he was the voice in Talk Radio, just to bring you back to Talk Radio once again, as well, the one calling in. So, I mean, there's all these connections. And I really love that. I love when you can see a performer who finds some success that he has a lot of kind of fond memories from the people that he came up with and that goes back to also mark boone jr who we've seen on a number of the films that we've covered on uh, on this podcast though uh though not this one surprisingly enough but i want to talk to you about jim jarmusch and carol Kane. what a pleasant thing jim jarmusch is hilarious in this by the way so I, I, good like yeah. so good so they, they basically call up uh character to come down he's desperate for money he needs to be able to pay rent and uh he thinks that he's going in for i guess some sort of audition they
1: hire him right away and what do they hire him for liam They're doing a show called The Naked Truth in which they interview people, ask them very personal questions while they are nude on TV. And Buscemi is – Buscemi's character, rather, is initially very offended at the idea, but of course he doesn't. He needs a hundred bucks, man. Come on.
0: Jim Jaramillo immediately pegs him as having a Don Knotts vibe, (laughs) which is actually incredibly accurate. In a different world, you could have a very Don Knotts-esque A legacy for Steve Buscemi but Carol Kane says that he actually carries a Gary Cooper vibe which I don't know she might have just been trying to sweeten the pot a little bit but either way um, he's offered 100 bucks for being on the show ends up getting 40 because it was a take it or leave it type deal very hilarious it's such a pleasure to see those two interact what did you think of those uh, kind of performances in general
1: you know Carol Kane is 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 Charming as hell, uh, but it's really Jim Jarmusch because I don't think (laughs) of him as the guy he is in the movie. Like I think of him as such more of a. Restrained, soft-spoken gentleman. So him just being like, "Oh, the fucking thing," and "Oh, is fucking Don Knotts is here." I was like, "Whoa, all right, Jim Jarmusch, all right." Uh, but it's you know, it's a it's a goofy scene. It's not like <laughs> I don't want to mislead people into thinking these are major characters in the in the film. But what <laughs> happens does come up later at a very fun time and makes another scene very fun. So uh, I'll just go ahead and say, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that they're in the movie.
0: I put the picture up on my uh, Twitter feed, but right, like one of the first things Jim Jarmusch says is, we got a dog that can read your mind and it just cuts to this pug sitting on the floor. I thought it was so hilarious. Yeah, it's a really it's a great moment. It's just great. it It reinforces both the kind of uh, height reality of the movie, but also it's just there's just such welcome presence <laughs> a presence. you know, there's such a welcome presence in the movie is what I mean to say. Uh, and it's nice to see Carol Kane. Looking confident. I know that's such a strange thing to say, but we're still on Praising Kane covering a lot of her early career where she's playing a lot of characters that are, you know, quirky and out of sorts and things like that. It's just, even though this is a very small role, it's nice to jump ahead in time, uh, 12, 13 years, and see a performer that's a much more assured and and comedic performance because we haven't really reached those yet.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about that aspect, Doug, but I I think you're right. This felt. More like a familiar Carol Kane, yeah, than what exactly. we've gotten to cover yet, you know, which doesn't mean I don't like what she's been able to do in some of these other movies. But this Carol Kane hasn't really come out yet in our journey on that podcast,
0: right? Right? Well, hopefully, we'll be getting to it pretty darn soon, Liam. The end of the movie is kind of odd. Uh, there's <laughs> there's kind of a split between uh Steve Bashami's character and Seymour Cassell's character where. Uh, he thinks that he's being exploited. He thinks that he's run off with some money, that Seymour C- 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 Cassell has run off the, with the money for making the movie. <laughs> Steve Buscemi decides to get back at him by kidnapping a kid that he thinks is his son. <laughs> and uh, he also thinks, by the way, Seymour is has kind of absconded with Jennifer Beals, who Steve Buscemi really likes. We find out that it's a big misunderstanding. They take Steve Buscemi to the beach. Um, they all are, are there kind of talking. They have an argument. And then Seymour Cassell, in a scuffle, pretends to get shot, and then we find out at the very end (spoiler alert, everybody) that he actually did get shot. What did you take away from this ending? It's very un- uh, unusual. I'm not sure really what I really. I'm not sure I really grabbed onto it that much. To be totally honest with you,
1: it felt a little uh, perfunctory. Like maybe it's like a a nod to the idea that this is more a film about criminals than it is a film about filmmaking. I, I, sure, I, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a little strange. It's a little like uh, Cassell sort of functions as this magical figure, right? Who sort of floats in and out of their life, and so this is sort of his like exit, I guess. But it it was strange. It was a strange way to end the movie. I think perfunctory might be the way to to put it,
0: Liam, uh, because they can't show him making the movie, right? You know, actually, even when you're watching it, you never really get the impression he's ever going to really make the movie. I don't think that's really a consideration of the of this movie, but. Um, there's also no way to end this on a way that's kind of light and warm with, while also having kind of a definitive ending aside from doing something like this. It just comes – it's not that it comes out of nowhere. I think even when he kind of pretends to get shot and you, you kind of get the sense as he's walking away that maybe something like this is coming. Right. But, um, but I will say not – it didn't bring things to a close in a necessarily a satisfying way. By the way, he dies, and then there's a little bit of voiceover, and as you already referred to, Steve Buscemi says that he never even learned his last name. But I do kind of like that that in the context of the movie, Steve, Seymour Cassell's character is almost like an angel, just like he keeps mentioning angels. like He, he comes into his life, he provides all of this life experience and money and all of that sort of thing, and kind of changes him as a person, and then just dies just kind of goes away and then he has to live the rest of his life having you kind of experience this i i like i like that element of it it just kind of there's a slightly modeling element to his death that i feel is sort of at odds how you're supposed to come away from the movie
1: yeah i i it's the one thing that i uh, that maybe i have been thinking about a little bit since having watched it um maybe not as deeply as i would if i was more emotionally connected to the film but uh, I guess for for me, it's sort of like it's it, it, it's an ending fitting of the character. Like, so I I, I guess I kind of think narratively, like, how else is this guy going to get out? Because sure, it, it allows it to resolve without ever having to answer the central mystery, which is was this movie ever going to get made? Yeah, <laughs> they, right. they don't know because now he's just leaving, you know, and and so in that way, maybe the movie is just about. The, the feeling of life getting in the way of what it is you thought you were going to be. So if Steve Buscemi is still the point, you know, uh, the, 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 the Cassell character is like just the embodiment of all the ways that life steps between you and whatever your dream, realistic or unrealistic, was of, of what you thought you would be by this point. You know what right. I mean? Absolutely.
0: Would you recommend In the Soup to... Uh, friends of yours to yes. film fans generally. Yeah, it's yeah. it's
1: incredibly charming. I, I you know I I might for some people I might say like th- this is not something to put on when you're in the mood for super exciting cinema, but <laughs> but a lot of people I know they like a they like a good meandering indie film, and if you can do that while also just like I don't know just just be filled with brimming filled to brimming with very compelling performances, uh, and I think this movie really does that. So you know.
0: One of the things that's so interesting about Tracing Steve Buscemi's career is the fact that he was doing a lot of lead roles at this time. Now, I think a lot of people think of him as a supporting character actor, but, I mean, there is something appealing. You know, we've talked about his look a little bit before, right, and how it's kind of a very distinctive look. But it's also a very handsome look, and it is exactly the kind of character where he's handsome enough, that you could believe that he would pursue a beautiful woman and that she might be interested in him. But he's also odd looking enough that you could also believe that he'd be completely rejected. And he really does have a, a very unique balance in this time period where he's playing roles like this and Ed and his dead mother, and you know, in and, and, and other films that we've talked about and ones we will talk about, where he kind of fits a role. And you can see why people saw a movie like this and their takeaway from it was Sibusemi, he is someone who should be in a lot more movies, and Seymour Cassell is unbelievable. And I think that's the two things that I'm going to remember about this movie. What a great performance by Steve Buscemi, and what an unbelievable one by Seymour Cassell. Yeah, I definitely would recommend it. I'm so glad it's been preserved, and I'm so glad that people are getting a chance to see it over the last few years in a way that it, it deserves to be seen.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm really. I didn't realize when we picked this movie that part of the narrative would be it's kind of rediscovery and reintroduction because i didn't know about how it kind of just disappeared uh so i'm really glad that that's part of the story uh that like we you know this thing has been restored and what was kind of lost for a while can finally be seen and and hopefully uh people will make the effort to do that the fact is a lot of the
0: independent films of the 90s ones that were shot on film they have not been preserved properly we are in danger of losing high quality versions a lot of these films i mean we were talking about a little bit on our episode on what happened was the tom noonan film you know tom noonan was a contemporary of CBSM. he actually mentions him on the wtf interview a lot of kind of interlinking people in regards to that but that was a film that had to be restored as well it doesn't seem that long ago to probably to you and i the 1990s in terms of the films then you'd think that they would have all been like taken care of and they're all involved somewhere but the fact is uh, a movie like *In the Soup*, again, a Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner. Almost the original elements were almost lost forever. So think about how how many other films out there also need restoration, also need preservation. So uh, is that something to think about? Something that always kind of bothers me, and that is not even thinking about further back than then. So many films with the potential of being lost forever.
1: Yeah, I I I'm just uh, I'm hoping that we are uh, that we are able to be concerned about preservation outside of profit.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think that the only way that that's going to happen is that the uh, tools and methods of preservation become so uh inexpensive or cheaper that they can be done as a labor of love or without the profit-minded because we know big companies are not going to do it for any other reason but profit boy i'm 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 sounding cynical again
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i know
0: (laughs) well i mean i mean it does seem to be moving in that direction we know people who are buying like 2k scanners and things like that with the hope of preserving uh films so more of that please more of that Uh, let's see more great independent work out in the world and preserved.
1: Liam, what are we going to watch on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? Well, this will be a bit of a nostalgia trip for me, Mm -hmm. and and I bet for you as well. We're going to be checking out 2003's Big Fish. uh, uh, You know, kind of a a heartstring puller directed by Tim Burton. Uh, I remember when this came out, I was in love with this movie. Uh, The combo of Magical realism and daddy issues Mm -hmm. was just exactly what I needed to, like, you know, get me into it. Uh, Since then, I've heard a lot of people have turned on this movie. So I'll be interested to see. Uh, It stars Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, uh, Billy Crudup, and of course, of course, Steve Buscemi. Uh, 2003's Big Fish. Watch it before we get to it, folks, so you can be part of the discussion. I think at this time,
0: because this, this movie came out after Planet of the Apes, which obviously was not, I don't know about the financial success, but people didn't have necessarily a lot of good feelings towards it. But at that time that Planet of the Apes came out, people were still feeling very positive about Tim Burton. And this felt like, oh, this is his recovery from it before going on to make like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland and Dark Shadows and Frank and Weenie and Big... Yeah, he just, at this point, it feels like there's a lot of negativity towards Tim Burton. And I think that that negativity might have turned back upon... Big fish right, to a right. certain extent. So, I mean, I'm very, I'm just like you. I have not seen it in many years. I did like it a lot when it first came out. Uh, my wife, uh, who does not watch a lot of films, she said she cried when she sighed. The daddy issue center of it probably was a little bit more interesting at a time when not all of Tim Burton's movies had some sort of daddy issue at its core. Fair. Uh, but, fair. but maybe, you know, we. though movies don't exist in isolation, I do think that we can watch it without having to think about, <laughs> you know, what uh, the. Tim Burton's upcoming Adams Family movie Is going to be like Or something like that So yeah I'm looking forward to To checking out Big Fish Uh, That cast is Again Whatever feelings you have About the movie That's an amazing cast And uh, yeah Looking forward to Checking it out
1: I as well Doug
0: Liam We have a a website And when I say we I mean you You have a website Called CinePunks.com And on that website There's a lot of great content There's tons of great writing Lots of other
1: podcasts Where can people
0: Check that out online Outside of CinePunks.com Which I've already brought up Uh, Well, they can go ahead
1: and follow us on social media, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. They can also uh, dive into the archives of this podcast over at com. They can follow this podcast on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G
0: certainly can you can also follow liam on twitter at liam rules that's r-u-l-z and i'm on there as well at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y as liam mentioned go over to cinemasmorgansboard.com leave us some feedback leave us some suggestions regarding either content that you want to see maybe other podcasts we want to uh, want us uh, to launch and if you have a podcast provider of choice if you want to leave us a review we of course would appreciate it subscribe tell your friends we can only keep this thing going if uh, other people are listening and that's what we love to have is feedback but for now liam We need to take a break. We need to rest ourselves up because we're going to be back very soon with another Steve Buscemi classic. Good night, everybody. Night, night.